very beautiful number. Thank you, choir. We do have every reason to rejoice, don't we? What a, what a wonderful reminder of that, too. We who uh, take a day like today, we come before the Lord on a communion Sunday, and if you'll join me in Isaiah 53, it's uh, what I'd like to do on a communion Sunday is just focus everything toward uh, what we are doing in our service. I, I don't believe that communion is just a tack on at the end of a service. Uh, if we're going to remember the Lord and what he's done for us, let's remember the Lord and what he's done for us. And uh, I've always uh, thought that the communion service has two basic uh, words to say to us every time we come to it. And the first would be, how great is our sin. And the second is, how great is his mercy. And those two things are, are what we are reminded of here this morning again. And the choir song was perfect for that. We ought to rejoice today. Uh, it's, it's not the uh, most enjoyable side of uh, our Christian experience that we have to remember what we used to be. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul starts, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And, and then he goes and explains how dead we were. And nobody's comfortable with that. But it's necessary to to take that walk once in a while just to remind ourselves of how great His mercy is. And that's what we're going to remember here today. And I've set a, uh, a visual before you that I want you to think about as we go through our, our words today. It's that brick that sits on the communion table. Uh, some of you might have even noticed I walked up there and set it up. Uh, I want you to think about that a little bit as we go through. But Isaiah 53 is where we're going to be. Isaiah 53. Now, we, we have communion four, uh, usually four times a year. This year, we happen to have five. Our next one will be on New Year's Eve. December 31st is a, a uh, communion day as well. It's always a fifth Sunday if there's five Sundays in a month. And uh, so, um, let's see, this is the fourth time I've been in Isaiah. We just come to Isaiah 53 each time uh, to focus on what Christ has done for us. And what we have discussed so far from these uh, words in Isaiah 53 uh, pertain to eight facts taught in this chapter. And I'm taking one fact each time we go through. And the first fact we studied is clearly taught in Isaiah 53 that we are sinful and deserve God's wrath. The second fact that we studied was that we are rebellious and refuse to listen to God's truth. That's why he starts his message here in 53. Who has believed our report? And that's because we don't choose to. We didn't. Fact number three, Christ came to our spiritually barren, morally depraved world. That's one we dealt with about three months ago. And today, Christ took our sin and our punishment. That'll be our focus. I'll give you the other ones so that you know where we'll end up eventually. And uh, the next time we get together in December, Christ took our ridicule and shame and 
The sixth one is Christ's death satisfies our need, his need, and the Father's need. Seventh thing this chapter teaches us is that some will believe the message. And the eighth thing, Christ will receive the glory. So those eight things we will work through as we study this. But today, Christ took our sin and our punishment. Christ took our sin and our punishment. There are actually six verses that I just want to uh, set before you out of this chapter. Follow with me as I go through these. Verse number four. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Two words to point out. The word bore. He himself bore. Surely our griefs he himself bore. The second is our sorrows he carried. Bored, bore, and carried are two words I want to emphasize. Verse number five. As well, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. Underscore that in your thinking. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. Fell upon him. And by his scourgings we are healed. Jump down to verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Fall on him. Verse number 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. He was cut off. What the writer says. Verse number 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear, there's that word again, he will bear their iniquities. And finally, verse 12. Therefore I will lock him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out, see those words, He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore, there's that word again, he bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. We've got a handful of words that keep popping up, don't they? That's going to be our focus today. So let's ask the Lord's help. Gracious Lord, as we go through this section, we're going to talk about you. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you talk to us. Your Spirit teach us and and work in our hearts and draw us to Yourself, we pray. There's many things within us, Lord, that uh, uh, perhaps need dealt with. And You can do that so wonderfully, so accurately, and yet so lovingly. And we pray that You accomplish that today. In our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two aspects of the suffering of Christ at least two, that uh, we would comprehend at least to some degree, I think, not very well, but to some degree, we understand what it means to hurt physically, to receive pain. We understand a physical type of suffering. 
And this chapter is not quiet on the issue that Christ suffered physically. We know that. And we're going to see that especially today. Uh, next time we get together on this passage, we're going to see that he also suffered mentally in this crucifixion on our behalf. It was a mental thing. And some of us understand a little bit about mental suffering, but wait till we see what the Savior went through. But there's also a third element that I'm not sure any of us fully understand. Someday we will when we step into glory. And that there is a spiritual side to suffering too. And we're going to eventually bring those all three together. But today, the physical side of the suffering of Christ is our focus. With those handful of verses that I gave you. I set this brick before you. Now I'll explain a little bit of it. Imagine... Just use your imagination this morning that uh, one brick represents one sin. All right? We could probably handle that much, can't we? Uh, one sin committed uh, equates to one brick. Wouldn't it be nice if that's all we had to carry about? Just one. Because I could carry that in a little Walmart bag and bring it down here to the church. And I, I think probably most of us would tolerate carrying one brick around with us wherever we had to go. But the reality is that we've done much better than that with the count, haven't we? I'm not going to point fingers because they'll just come right back at me. But how many of us can build a palace today? With the number of bricks we've collected over the years, if each sin com committed represented one brick. Now, there are some who may think, well, yeah, I've done these things and now it's my job to carry this load. And I don't know if you've ever tried to lift a, a pallet of bricks before. It's not something that human beings do. Machines do that kind of thing. And some of them, it's still a struggle for them to get it off the ground. And a pallet's nothing compared to perhaps the count that we would account for personally of how many bricks I would put upon a pallet. Uh, a large, large number. Now, the picture I want you today to grasp as you see that thing sit in front of you is not that you in any way can lift it or carry it or even have any hopes of that. But the picture is that you are under it. All right? Imagine your pile and you are under it. That's going to be uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah, I would even understand this, too, concerning the real issue of sin. Even if we only had one, and I minimized it, I made it sound almost like that would be a dream, but even if we only had one sin, Scripture says that's enough to condemn us forever away from the presence of the Lord. One sin brings death. One. The wages of sin is death, right? Just one is enough to condemn us forever. And yet when I read through these verses, I underscored a couple of words on purpose, didn't I? The word bore, the word carried, the word crushed, the word poured out. These words are, are given to us throughout this, and, and it emphasizes what the Lord has done for us. 
I'll give you some definitions as we work through here. The idea of boring, the word bore, is the idea of lifting something up. It's a Hebrew word to lift it up, to raise it up. Okay? We've got that concept. It's not a hard one for us. Uh, to carry, to transport something, to carry a heavy load. The Hebrew word for that is to carry a heavy load. And it was a term they actually used figuratively of servitude. The servants, in, in the, the way they, they carried the, the, the weight of servitude. And that meant it was like a heavy load on their back. And we can almost picture that, can't we? Uh, a slave or a servant under such incredible weight of, of, of slavery that there's, it's crushing them. The scripture says so clearly in verse number four, both of those words are there. He took up our uh, infirmities, he, he's our griefs. He himself took up, he bore, and our sorrows he carried. And implied in that is that we had left him a heavy load. All right? Those two words are before us. Uh, also in verse number 11, it's there again. He will bear their iniquities. Uh, in verse number 12, he bore the sin of many. So the picture is repeated over and over as if we have left him this enormous weight and we were crushed underneath it, and he is the one who came and picked it up off of us and put it on himself and carried it. Not just held it. He carried it away. This is the picture that you have of what Christ has done for us. He lifts up. He takes it upon himself. He carries it on his back, the weight of man's sin, and he walks away. Where does that leave us? Free. Aren't those beautiful words? Free. That he should do such a thing. Today we, we looked at the physical side of what this is. Christ took our sins. There's two things to this. He, he took our sin, but it's much more than just taking our sin. Much more than picking up the sin is the picture. He also took our punishment. Scripture shows us that. I mean, if he could just take the sins and there's, there's no consequences, we might all come away saying, actually, that was pretty nice. He just got rid of it. But the, it's not what he did. He not only took our sins, but he took the punishment of those sins, too. And that's the, the picture that we set before you today. He was pierced through. Verse 5 said that, right? Look at it. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Pierced through. What a horrid word that is. Even in the definition of it, to, to bore through, to perforate, to pierce. It has the idea of a painful piercing. It refer, refers to some infliction of wounds on the body, some act of piercing, some penetrating wound that would endanger or take life applied to the actual sufferings of the Messiah, we would say, yes, he was pierced through, wasn't he? We mark it as nails in the hands, through the feet, a spear in his side, don't we? Now, it's kind of interesting 
And I have this neat little quote I want to read to you here. But uh, if you in, uh, ever came down to uh, Jeff's Sunday school class, he quizzes us often on uh, uh, what is in the Gospels. You know, and so one of the things would, he'd say, who said this? And he gives you like three words, and you've got to guess who said that, which Gospel wrote it. Uh, I would ask you a little bit of a quiz based on that that I've learned from him. Which of the four Gospels makes reference to the nails in his hand and in his feet? Your options are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of the above, or none of the above? Now you're thinking. The answer is none of the above. You say, oh, come on. Really? No gospel makes reference to the nails in his hands and in his feet. We get that from another section of Scripture. Now, I'll tell you why. First, and then I'll read you the quote. If you go to Matthew, for example, 27, you go to Mark 15, you go to Luke 23, you go to John chapter... um, no, it's not 14, 19, 19. Uh, you go to any one of those passages that describe the crucifixion, they describe it in one sentence. Oh yes, there's other things going on. Dividing up of his clothing, offering him something to drink, uh, mocking him and all those things. But all of them say it the same way. They took him to the hill called Golgotha, and there they crucified him. That's all they say about it. The rest was all the events going around that. Not one of those mentions the nails. Now, I'll read to you this quote. I like it very much. This is what J. Vernon McGee said. Those who are acquainted with God's Word realize that Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 give us a more vivid account of the crucifixion of Christ than is found elsewhere in the Bible. This may be a shock to many who are accustomed to think that the four Gospels alone describe the sad episode of the horrible death of the Son of God. If you you will carefully examine the Gospel accounts, you will make the discovery that only a few unrelated events connected with the crucifixion are given, and that the actual crucifixion is passed over with reverent restraint. The Holy Spirit has drawn the veil of silence over the cross, and none of the lurid details are set forth for the curious mob to gaze and leer upon. Interesting thought. They don't reference the physical in the sense of the piercings. But Isaiah 53 does, verse 5. He was pierced through, right? He was pierced through. Some people would would hold a nail in their hand and ask the question, I wonder if that hurt. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He was pierced through. Verse 5 says he was crushed to break to pieces, to bruise, to trample upon. He was broken under the weight of that sin. Broken. Crushed is the word here. And if you can fathom that pallet full of bricks resting on him, that's quite a picture, isn't it? He was crushed. There was a man in, in Alabama when we lived there. 
that I thought maybe he was he was a strong man. I thought he was he was uh, uh, pretty sharp with his ability to do great feats, but maybe there was something not quite up here. Uh, he had one feat he liked to do where he'd lay down on the ground and let a car run over his stomach. I wouldn't watch that. I didn't want to watch that. But that's what everyone wanted to see. They had to see this guy lay down and let this car come. I think they had ramps on either side of him. And he laid in the middle and it went off the ramp onto him and then down the other end. Doesn't that sound terrible? That's that's crazy. Who could watch Christ die? If some of us can't watch a car run over a guy, which one of us could have stood there at a cross and seen what Christ did? Yeah, the callous soldiers did, didn't they? They stood there and watched. The crowd, there was a number of them that stood there and watched. But there's kind of an interesting phrase in all that went on there. The father didn't watch. Remember what Jesus called out to his father? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When the weight of the sins of this world, the sins that you and I have committed, has been set upon him, the father turned his face away. That's awesome, folks. Incredible picture. Christ there all alone under the weight of it all. That's just not my pile, folks. That's your pile on top of my pile. And our piles together, right? He himself bore it, in verse number 4 we saw. He himself carried it, the text says. He himself was pierced through. There's an emphasis all the way through that. He himself, he himself, only him. He didn't have assistance in this. Nor did anyone else want that place that he took for us. He himself did it. By himself. Verse number 5 says that the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. Now I have that picture still. This enormous pallet of bricks not just resting on him but falling on him. Awesome picture, isn't it? The chastening that was due us fell on him. The scourging in verse number 5, it mentions as well, by his scourging we are healed. What an incredible phrase that is. The scourging, our scourging he took. Our scourging. Now, in all this, we we reference the fact that uh, uh, we're seeing a picture of God's wrath, just on the physical side, mind you. The physical side of what we deserve. Christ underwent physical suffering for these things. God's wrath is, is described in a couple of ways in Scripture. It is a very passionate anger. It's one that I'm not sure we quite grasp it fully. But uh, one Greek word is thumos. And the word thumos in the Greek is the idea of an explosive kind of wrath. And all of a sudden, boom! This incredible response, sudden outburst outburst of anger. It's quick, it's powerful, but it also has the idea to it that it's over quickly too. 
a sudden explosion and then it's done. And then there's another Greek word called orge. The word orge is a very passionate, long-lasting, very active wrath. It goes on and on and on, and it's intense. John 3.36 mentions that those who do not believe in him, the wrath of God abides on them. Which word do you think they used? It's the orge word. It is the long-enduring wrath. It's present tense, by the way. It means it goes on and on and on. And here are believers, are unbelievers, and that's where we were, right? As unbelievers. Marching along through life, and the whole time the wrath of God is abiding on us. His anger resting on us as we went about. The pile of bricks upon our head. The punishment, the... the Guilt, the shame, all resting there, constantly going about, not, not even getting relief when you go to sleep at night. You can't take it off. It's there, abiding, abiding. That's a terrible picture, isn't it? That's the picture of the unsaved right now. Do you realize that? Every single unsaved individual on the face of the earth is right now under that wrath of God. That's where we were, too. An active anger. He's not ignoring them. That's what some people think. Well, they're not his, so he's not going to think about it. Oh, no. He's got his attention on them. And that's what Scripture teaches us. And this is what we see in this picture. It's our chastening. This word that pictures wrath. Our chastening. The correction that a parent would inflict upon a child to, to make them uh, what they ought to be. To correct them. To... To do it for their good. That chastening, God does. And He does it toward us. And that chastening that was due us, Christ took upon Himself. Our scourging. There are three words I've, I've uh, had found when I looked up the word scourging. You know, you always look for great big, huge definitions. And this one book said three words for its definition. Horrible, horrid, hideous. End of sentence. I said, ooh. Well, it's not a pretty picture. I'm only going to describe it here because I'm not being sensational. I want you to know what Christ did for you. To be scourged, they took a handle, several cords of leather attached, Weighted at the end with jagged pieces of bone or metal. That's only to make the blows more effective, they say. The victim was tied to a post, and the blows were applied to the back and to the legs. And if the executioner was especially cruel, he'd let it wrap around and hit the face and go around the belly. Usually the victim would faint. And often he would die. It'd take me one hit and I'm done. The Jews limited the blows to 39 because the law called for 40. And in case they miscounted, they didn't want to break the law. So they said, oh, we'll only give him 39. Only give him 39. Many victims do not live through that. 
That scourging is the word the Hebrew is describing to us here. That scourging was ours. And yet, by his scourging, we are healed. Look at those two words side by side. His scourging, our healing. Isn't that remarkable? They seem totally contrary to one another. But Christ took our sin. Christ took our punishment. Verse 6 says, The iniquity was caused to fall on him. Again, that picture, it's falling on him. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, you can use that word three different ways. You can uh, use the sense of falling, of accidentally meeting somebody. I fell upon them on the way while we were walking down the road. Right? And they would use that term like it was just an accidental kind of encounter. You think that's the way he wants you to take this word? Our sin accidentally fell on him? No. There's another word. Uh, then he's falling like the concept of he fell before this person. He was pleading for them. He was interceding for something. Uh, he, so he fell before them. It's very graphic to strike a deal to, to seek mercy or pardon. Um, I think you might be able to work with that a tiny little bit. But the third definition is the one that probably is the most pronounced in what they mean here. is to fall on somebody in a hostile way. The synonym is to kill somebody. It's to meet with another person, rush upon them for the sake of eliminating them. There's a, a picture of this in uh, the Old Testament. When David was near the end of his life, uh, he made a shopping list for Solomon. He said, Solomon, um, you're going to become the new king here. And I would recommend you take care of, um, well, these certain people. They've done things for me, and so I really thought that maybe I should show them mercy, uh, but they really deserve to be eliminated. And here's the list of these people, and so the first day in office, eliminate them. What a way to start. So Solomon had this man who worked for him named Benaiah. Benaiah went and fell on them. Now, it wasn't that he was a big, heavy man, and he just happened to plop and crush them to death. The term is that he went to kill them, to eliminate them. The Old Testament uses that phrase for him over and over and over again. Benaiah went and fell on him. Benaiah went and fell on him. The intent all the time was, I'm going to eliminate that person. I will kill them. That is the sense of this word. The word that they use here is, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What was the Lord's intent? It was to kill our Messiah, our Savior. The crucifixion was not just a casual thing, was it? It was not something that was temporary in the sense of, well, you know, if we punish him enough, everyone will have mercy and they'll feel sorry for what they've done, and, and then I'll let him off. No, the intent was to have him killed. That's what our sin has brought about. It killed him. It went with that intention. It fell on him. Another picture in verse number 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Usually we kind of jump past this verse because we're not quite sure. What is he talking about? But I'll tell you what it means right in the middle. And that's probably the best picture of it right there. 
To cut off is a term they use for chopping down a tree. They'd go and they'd, they'd take down the tree. It was then separated, severed, divided from that which kept it alive. And that's exactly the picture again of a cross, isn't it? He was severed from the living. He was cut off from the living, separated, severed, divided. It's a picture of a violent strike to remove him from living. He was cut off out of the land of the living, verse number 8 says. Verse number 11 adds, the result of the anguish of his soul. The anguish, that word anguish, uh, to labor, to toil, to travail. It is the term they use for women giving birth as well. Labor with pain, severe toil, excessive toil, weariness, exhaustion. Physically it gets you, doesn't it? This is a picture again, the anguish of his soul. This isn't pretty, is it? And you start to walk through all these things and say, physically, what did Christ endure for me? Because I'm the one who produced the bricks, right? What did he do for me? It says in verse 12, he poured himself out to death. He poured out himself to death. Who caused his death? You know, that question has been raised over the years for many. And there's always somebody who would find uh, the Romans to blame, or the Jews to blame, or the priests to blame, or, or they'd even point the finger at us and say, we're to blame. And I think, yes, you could add all those together and say that's true. But read the words again. He poured out himself. Who was in charge of his life and death? He was. He was. John 10 will tell you that he has the life, he has the right to lay down his life, he has the right to take it back up. It was given to him by the Father to control that moment when he wants to lay down his life. And that's exactly what he did. For all of those who went about trying to kill him, they weren't going to kill him until he was ready to lay down his life. So I would, I would see from this verse that this was intentional. This act on a cross was on purpose, wasn't it? It was thought through. It was known. It was decided. It was accomplished by Jesus Christ. It wasn't an accident. He knew why he came. And he knew what to do. And he did it, didn't he? He poured himself out to death. He emptied himself. The idea of even emptying is to strip off all the covering, if you will. It's a picture of, of nothing left covered. The thought is that life is in the blood, right? You've heard that before. Life is in the blood. He poured that out for us. He poured that out. A testimony of his death. His life was poured out. How many times do we see in Scripture of him emptying himself? Remember Philippians 2? He emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. He came down out of heaven, came down to this earth, took on human flesh. He emptied himself. And we're still trying to figure out fully what that means. But he empties himself and becomes a servant. So he may dwell among us. And now he walks up to a cross 
And he empties himself. The term uses it here again. To me, it seems like it's a, it's a step farther than a servant now. It's now a sacrifice. He empties himself. He pours out his life. In the garden, folks, if you read those passages and very carefully think through it, the cup was passed to him. And remember, he kept pleading with the Father about that cup. So, I, in, in my paraphrase of things, he would say, I don't want to take this, but Father, if this is the only way, I'll take it. Three times he brought that up before the Lord, his Father. And he talked about that cup. One that would wrestle with a cup like that. I would rather not drink it, but this is a cup of pain and humiliation. It's a cup of wrath of the Father. And yet, what did he do with that cup? He took it, didn't he? He took that cup knowing what was in it. He took those bricks knowing how much they weigh. He took the pain knowing what it would be. He took that all upon himself. Peter says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. What an awesome phrase that is. You wrestle with sin? silly question. We do, don't we? We wrestle with it. We wrestle with it. We wrestle with it. Well, when you think about sin and what it really is, it's more than wrestling, folks. It's worse than that. Because you can't even lift it. You cannot contend with it. You cannot conquer it. You cannot. I cannot. Christ did. Do you see it? Christ came and he took what we couldn't take. He lifted up what we couldn't lift. He carried off what we couldn't part with. He took. He took on a cross. I want to show you one verse. As we've traveled through this, one verse. Well, there's others I'd like to talk to. But let's go to Colossians chapter 2. I speak especially to those who might in the last week or, or a little while since have really wrestled with something. And you don't know what to do with it. Now, I've given you all the, the words of Isaiah here in this chapter that show you what Christ has done for you. I want you absolutely, thoroughly convinced of what he accomplished on that cross. But in Colossians 2, there are two verses that just stand out. Verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Do you see those words there? Let me ask you something. Seriously. Think this through in your own heart. What transgression did he not pay for? The scripture says he forgave us of how many? All our transgressions. He didn't leave three bricks 
and say, well, yeah, I'll take the majority, but you can handle these three. I'll just leave these three for you. They won't, they won't weigh too much. You can learn to cope with it. He didn't do that, did he? He took all. And we are forgiven all through his blood. That's what it says. And then verse 14 adds this. Having canceled out, he's describing what forgiveness looks like. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, I want to give you a picture. It's real simple. A certificate of debt. Some people who have issues, they've been in trouble with their credit cards, and they understand that that they had that receipt passed on to them one day when they had something they were going to purchase and put on that card, and that receipt was passed to them and a pen, right? They said, sign here. And what did you do? Put your name on it. You became responsible for that debt, true? You stand before some, some uh, title agency or something someday, and they, you say, we're going to buy this house, and you're going through all the motions and everything. And then they hand you a stack of papers, not quite like that, and they say, sign this, sign this, sign this, sign this, sign this, sign this. Who's responsible now? You almost come away depressed after those moments, don't you? Some of you have been there. Especially when they have that one page. This is how much your mortgage is really going to cost you. And you're like... Uh, you, you put your name on it. Now, I want you to fathom something just for a minute. Because sin is our responsibility. For every brick, we've signed our name. We've written our name. He says, that's a certificate of decrees against you. You have signed your name on every one. And what does he say he did with them? He canceled them out. You see it? He canceled them out. They were hostile to us, yes, but he took them out of the way. He nailed them to a cross, didn't he? Where are they now, folks? Gone. You like that word? Gone. We remember what Christ has done. Talk about the physical things he endured for you. And ask yourself this question. Does he love me? Does he love me? He didn't come, as he told once in John 3, he didn't come to judge this world. He didn't need to judge the world. The world was already judged. He didn't come to judge the world, but that the world might believe. And this morning, before we even walk up to take part of this communion service, I want you to ask yourself this moment, Do you know Christ as your Savior? That's what it comes down to. Is Christ your Savior? There is no other hope. Without Him, that pile of bricks still rests on your back. Christ is the only one who can do something about that. And He's done it. He's died on a cross for you. He endured the physical side of all that suffering for you. Do you believe Him? Have you received him? If you have, that's what this is all about, is the reminder of that. If you've been wrestling with something and you said, Lord, I I just can't conquer this one. Yes, you cannot conquer this one. He can. Leave it at his cross.
It's nailed there, right? Leave it at his cross. That's not for you to bear anymore. He bore it. It's not for you to carry anymore. He carried it. Is that true? Yeah. It's time we leave it where it belongs. We'll remember that, I pray, as we take of these things. Let's have a word of prayer, and then the man will come and assist me, please.